John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Well, hello. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And we are continuing our uh, look at the Library of America's Civil War anthology. Um, this is a four volume um, series uh, that each volume covers about one, like one year of the war. Um, of course, the war was four years long. Um, and. Uh, you know, it, what I've, I've, as I've said many times in this series already, what I like about this anthology is that it com- combines many yeah. different perspectives. It's not just uh, soldiers' documents. It's not just politicians. It's not just like Lincoln and Jeff Davis. Or it's, you know, we get many, many different points of view here. And I think that's uh, one of the advantages of this source. But at the same time, it provides kind of a coherent narrative of the war. It doesn't... Um, skip over important events so i think this would be uh like if i were to you know i know it's a little pricey to get all four volumes but i imagine if you're teaching a like a civil war history class this would be a great you know companion piece to like a textbook like mcpherson if you're teaching mcpherson's textbook for instance to have this alongside of it i think this would be a really wonderful uh collection uh to to teach alongside that uh, type of course for maybe more advanced students. Um, at the very least, it'd be a good place to get students you know, used to using primary sources. There's a lot of research projects that could be pulled out of this. So I think there are practical uses for this anthology, but it also is just a great uh, read through. Um, and as an anth- it's an anthology, so if there's some documents you want to skip over, you can just do that. Um, I'm using this more as just kind of a, a study of the war and hopefully try to get different points of view. And I, I have already, I've, I've already been a uh, read documents. I haven't come across before. Um, and uh, you know, I've kind of somewhat, somewhat broadly aware of all the perspectives that have been presented, I suppose, but I get different angles. I'm, I have, I have seen some things that surprised me like uh, Greeley's early documents suggesting maybe we should let the South go. The, um, that's that's what comes to mind. But there's others. If you go back and listen to the previous episodes, there's there's been documents that are like, wow, that's that's kind of an interesting perspective on this. So, um, anyways, we are going to pick up with. Uh, well, first, let's say what's in this uh, selection of documents. As always, I do about 100 pages. Uh, it's a lot easier to break these up in uh, this kind of anthology than sometimes it is. Um, a little more truthful to the 100 pages at a time um, format here. Um, basically, these are going to surround the Battle of Wilson's Creek, I think. If the last episode surrounded the Battle of Bull Run, this is Wilson's Creek. Wilson's Creek was kind of the Bull Run of the West. It was uh, another Confederate victory, if you will, um, you know, and a kind of a surprising one where the North- Northern was sort of routed. Uh, similar casualty numbers. Uh, and it was an early setback. So it kind of helps set the context for our next episode, which is going to be kind of the doldrums of, of the winter of 1861-62, at least for, for the Union Army and Lincoln, uh, really fretting about the, the, the survival of the Union. This may be, maybe this is the moment when the survival was most, 
I mean, this whole year, I guess, all the way through 62, it was a little more up in the air. It's not really till Antietam, maybe, or or certainly till Gettysburg that the t- tide really turns. But uh, these were really dark days for, for the Union and for Washington. Uh, I mean, the city of Washington. So anyways, uh, that's going to be our, our centerpiece event, I guess, in this episode. But there's uh, a few other things going on. I think the rise of McClellan is maybe another kind of aspect of this that we should consider. So anyways, let's jump into it. Our first document is our from the Mary Chestnut Diary. This I'm, I'm pretty certain is going to be with us through most of this uh, four-volume anthology. As with the George Templeton Strawn, they kind of are paired together as extensive diaries commenting on the Civil War that historians use commonly to get uh, civilian perspectives on the war. So this diary covers, is it just, I think it's just July 24th. It's a really long entry for one day. Um, It's got all these breaks in it. Part of it is, a. I think it goes on to the 24th, 25th though, because she includes a letter. She got, uh, no, no, a letter she writes to, to, um, sorry. Uh, sorry, I had to cough there for a minute. Um, to a woman named Harriet, what's the relationship? I guess I didn't write that down, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a really long entry for one day in a diary, but there's, there's quite a lot going on here. Um, and of course, one thing that's interesting about Mary Chestnut is that she spent, um, much of the war in Richmond, and she was friends with Verena Davis. So she's kind of an eyewitness account to some of the goings-ons in Richmond, the, the Confederate capital. And she's, this is really a week or so after the first Battle of Bull Run. Um, and this is like then the civilian response to that victory. And I, I think I, I preluded this a little bit last time where I was struck by the... Um, her calling Jackson Stonewall. So, so I, I, of course we all know the, the nickname Stonewall Jackson comes from this battle, right? Where he held the line against union attacks and it was referenced. He's a, he's a Stonewall up there. Um, but I thought, I, I just assumed that would have taken a while to become the nickname, but it is already spreading around, uh, within days of the battle. And here we have, uh, Mary Chestnut actually talking about, uh, this this name Stonewall being being applied to to, uh, to Jackson. Um, she's very confident here in this journal too about or this diary entry about um, Union defeat, um, and she's pretty. She's of course a Confederate uh, patriot, um, at least at this point in the war. I, I think that holds through most of her her diary. Although I haven't read the whole thing cover to cover, we'll we'll keep an eye on that if her opinions change, because many women's opinions did change as the war dragged on, especially, uh, you know, so the South was really divided. The North was divided, too. Both sides had a lot of divisions to tangle with, but Southern divisions maybe were a little bit more crippling uh, because they had less manpower to work with. And when Southern women started asking their, their men to come home uh, to help with their farms or their plantations or, or just to give up on the cause, that was a bigger blow, right? Desertion was something the Confederate Army couldn't afford as much. Um, so she's really, at this point, still very confident, though, in victory, and why wouldn't she be, right? You've seen, you've seen uh, the first major battle being a, a pretty one-sided Union defeat. Um, but she does talk about women being the same everywhere, and I think there's a little bit of empathy she tries here where she's, 
she is aware that women on both sides are losing husbands and sons and and facing the struggle of, of the home front. And that's a common experience. And she's sympathetic to that. Um, mostly, though, this gets into the reaction in Richmond. Um, and she talks about how some people are talking about how this is don't be too overconfident. It's kind of, you know, how some northern voices are saying this isn't going to be such a short war. People like Sherman. You have some people on the streets of Richmond saying this is just going to lead to overconfidence, which they shouldn't have. The odds are still against us. I, I guess that's probably a minority opinion at the time, but she's aware of that. Um, she doesn't share it, of course, but other people are. Um, and, you know, she's she hears the stories of Mr. Chestnut. Her being in Richmond has lets her have contact with her, her husband. So she's getting his stories as well from, from the fronts. Um, she meets Robert E. Lee. So um, there's a lot of this stuff going on. And, and I think she does also talk about, uh, you know, meeting the Davises and, and things like that. So there's a whole lot going on in this, this particular document surrounding the, the, just the, the Confederate home front and especially at the political center where you'd expect confidence to maybe be quite high at this, this time in the war. I guess what I learned most here was just how close she was to the Davises. I didn't, I may have come across that factoid at some point, but you know, not having really read the diary before, I didn't know how, how close knit was her relationship with the, with the Davises. Um, but generally you have a lot praising the bravery of the troops, a little bit of discouragement that they didn't follow up and take Washington after the battle of, um, the first battle of Bull Run or Manassas as the Southerners called it. But anyways, lots of stuff here. Lots of, lots of good doc documents. And I, I think if someone wants to use the Mary Chestnut, I think they should just read the whole diary. I think it shouldn't be too hard to find, but the selections here are already adding up to be a pretty significant historical document, I suppose. But you know, I don't know how long the whole thing is. I guess, but it's there. Um, so next uh, document, we kind of shift to Northern politics and we have the Crittenden Johnson resolutions. Who are these people? Um, well, John J. Crittenden, we already met. He's, a set, or he's, a, he's in the House of Representatives now, I think. During the Crittenden Compromise period before Lincoln's inauguration, that's when they're trying to maybe ref, you know, revise, revise the Constitution to, def, to protect slavery uh, by constitutional fiat. Um, that that was when he was in the Senate, I think, and then he he was then elected to the House of Representatives. That happened, I think, more often in these days. You know, even like John Quincy Adams was president and later on elected to the House of Representatives. So this kind of shifting between different um, branches and was a little more common. I guess nowadays it sounds like people they tend to go to the legislature and then go to an administration and then then try to go for then stay in the executive branch more often um we'll see that's just my feeling um i i don't have anything scientific to back it up this is how we can sort of grok it um you know senate has become kind of a gateway to presidential runs these days hasn't it um but here he, he flipped back to the house of representatives i can't think of a any house members now that were once in the senate but anyways, Crichton, he's famous for proposing that. He's a, he's, remember, he's from Kentucky, and Kentucky had divided loyalties. His own family was divided. Crichton's had, I think, two sons, and one son fought for the Union and one for the Confederacy. So he himself was in a divided family, and he wanted to avoid war, and that was the Crichton Compromise. So 
even though it would have written slavery into the Constitution as something defended, not something abolished. Uh, it's, you know, I, I think he wasn't coming from a, a from a nefarious position. He generally seemed to have wanted to avoid war. Now, the other person here is Andrew Johnson, and we, of course, know all about him in our histories of Reconstruction and all that. And he's also a Southerner, right? He's from Tennessee. I guess that's one reason Lincoln chose him um, as vice president in the second term. So these resolutions, which were put forth in the summer of 1861, you know, a couple, um, I guess in in the direct aftermath of the first battle of Bull Run, would have kind of done what the constitutional amendments he proposed would have done, which would have... uh, promised a non-interference with slavery now was this possible i i highly doubt it was possible i just think the military realities uh would have made it i mean people like butler and fremont were right that it's you know how can we take we take a cannon or we take a confederate property all the time because they're rebels against the, the government and we're in a war but not slaves because we're going to not interfere with slavery. That doesn't make much sense. Uh, now, of course, there's the question of if loyal people and their slaves run away, do you return them? You know, but that's those are marginal cases. The vast majority of slaveholders were in rebellion at this point. So people like Butler were saying, let's just seize this stuff. Let's just use it to our advantage. You know, use whatever legal mechanisms we want. And some of these people, of course, Fremont was very, very strongly anti-slavery, too. So it wasn't just these were generals not just doing what they wanted to do to win the battle. They were, some of them were, you know, really anti-slavery people. And that's certainly true of Fremont. We'll get to him later. But uh, these politicians are trying to say, well, we're not going to interfere with slavery over the course of the war. Um, And I think the target here is probably border states. Um, But... But anyways, now I don't know the details of like Andrew Johnson's who's in the Senate at this time, keeping his seat, because I guess if you were a unionist, you could they, they kept you on as representatives of the state. I think they I think maybe the Republicans wanted those kinds of voices in Congress because it wasn't they, they never held that these secessions were legitimate. Right. And, you know, I think the Supreme Court, I don't know if any how many people left the Supreme Court, but Tanny, of course, stayed and he 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 did the Dred Scott decision. So some people stayed in government because they were loyal to the Union, even if they're from the South, and, and maybe that helped. I don't know the details of that. Maybe it's, it's probably pretty easy to look up. But anyways, that's, that's what this is. Um, basically, it's, it's, the language of these resolutions is surrounded in the language of defending the supremacy of the Constitution and also very specifically defining war aims kind of in law, which... Um, you know, perhaps makes some sense. Uh, coming from my generation, having lived through these kind of endless wars and wars without clear aims, you can kind of sympathize a little bit with that. But of course, had the war aims been clearly established, it would have been harder for Lincoln to pivot to make the war, a, 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 as he said, a new birth of freedom. Anyways, these don't, these don't necessarily go anywhere, but it's a sentiment in the Congress at the time. 
All right, so our next document is one of a series of letters we're going to get over the next uh, couple episodes between George McClellan or from George McClellan to Mary Ellen McClellan, his wife. And these are kind of nice letters. Uh, you know, George McClellan, he's famous for a couple reasons. One is he takes over the Union Army after the defeat at the first battle of Bull Run, and he builds the army. He was much more a logistics guy. He was like a railroad guy, right? And his experience in the railroad led him, gave him insight into how to organize and mobilize and train an army that was his concerns uh and that's what he did he built the army of the potomac the army that would go on to victory was largely built by him but he of course his reputation has been tarnished by a couple things uh the peninsular campaign the peninsula how the, is the peninsula campaign whatever this offensive in 62 this attempt to seize Richmond, the, the first large-scale campaign in the east uh, which uh, was a bit of a disaster. Um, heavy Confederate losses in that, but still a, a defeat that forced them to go back. Uh, and this led to then a series of defeats over the course of the rest of 62. And uh, he would still be in command of the army at, at Antietam. So that, that kind of epi epoch of his rule ends with a very, very important victory. But, uh, you know, he's really significant in building the army and training it. Um, the other part of his legacy, of course, is he runs against Lincoln on a peace platform in in 64 and loses. But, you know, had the election been earlier, he might have won. And, you know, you know, Lincoln won pretty decided decisively. But that was after certain victories were established that that gave increased confidence in in Lincoln from the, the people had increased confidence in Lincoln. But anyways, uh, because, you know, I like these letters. They're very personal. We see George McClellan feeling uh, the weight of his burden and his the pressures and the power he has. He's certainly very, very aware of the power he has. He even says in a couple of letters, I don't know if he's playing around, is, but he kind of talks about, because he has been called like the little Napoleon, right, um, by some people. I think at the time they called him that too. So he was kind of maybe big-headed, a little arrogant. But here he's playing with the idea like, I could probably be a dictator. I could just seize the government kind of like napoleon did right of course napoleon used the army to seize power i don't know how serious he was about that but maybe it does influence his his uh you know how he carries himself as as commander of of the army um, but he says i seem to have become the power in the land i almost think that were I to win some small success now, I could become dictator or anything else that might please me. But nothing of that kind would please me. Therefore, I won't be a dictator. So, um, you know, and I think at this time when there's a lot of doubts about Lincoln, we've seen it from Henry Adams. We've seen it by, by politicians. There's, there's some real doubts about Lincoln at this point in his presidency by, by many voices, as we'll see. So we're going to come back to these uh, McClellan letters later on. Um, so next we have, uh, William Sherman to, uh, his wife, uh, Ellen Sherman, Ellen, a week, sir Sherman. Uh, this is from July 28th. So this is partially a report on Bull Run. Uh, he was there, of course, Sherman was at the first battle of Bull Run. Um, and so he saw the defeat, defeat. He saw the carnage as his first real experience in battle. Um, I think first major experience. I don't know what he had prior to this, but he certainly witnessed the carnage of the war. 
he saw the defeat as disgraceful, the retreat as disgraceful. He quotes, our men are not good soldiers in this, um, in this document. So he shows a lot of frustration with the military and the troops and just saying they weren't ready for this fight and it was pretty gross is, is how he described it. Um, and he also says politics are getting in the way of saving the nation and which is another kind of sentiment we see floating around, which might lead to why might be one of the reasons McClellan was playing with maybe I should be a dictator, right? If the civilian government's not doing its job. Um, but I, I, I think this frustration was a strength of the Union in a way because they were able to shift commanders. Of course, Lincoln gets a new Secretary of War um, early in the conflict, someone much better at the job. Uh, we're going to have people, you know, generals being switched. It's this kind of you know, different commanders being tried out by Lincoln until he finally finds the right people. Um, that was harder for the Southern military to do, as I understand it, because they were, it was an aristocratic army. In large part, and those people had landed estates and money and influence, and they couldn't be so easily replaced. So of course, some were, but I think it took deaths for people to be, you know, people get promoted from deaths, not because the president was firing them. But Lincoln was firing uh, generals for, for defeats. But you do that enough, you're eventually going to find the right people. It's the same thing with, uh, is it Marshall? Uh, before World War II, where the army was maybe not firing people, but moving people to, uh, you know, to schools, to academies, moving people to, you know, out of front positions that would be frontline, you know, fighting um, and put in new people. You know, there's that preparation for it. Now, Lincoln had to do it on the fly. And there wasn't any period of preparation for that. Nevertheless, um, Sherman has some hope. His hope is in the regulars. So he doesn't have much. He doesn't think much of these three-month recruits. And as we saw last time, neither does Lincoln. Lincoln said, get rid of these people as soon as you can and replace them with regular troops who are going to be trained and be here for a while. Okay, so next we got uh, Horace Greeley's public letter to Lincoln. Uh, this is July 1861, July 29th. Um, it was published in the New York Tribune, I believe. Um, and so this is a response. Uh, no, it's, it's just a public letter. I think, I guess Greeley had a, had a column like on to Richmond, it was called. Uh, like an editorial, which basically was calling for a more aggressive offensive against the Confederacy. Um, but this is kind of a fascinating little document where he plays with the possibility of peace. And he actually says, like, if if this defeat is mortal, we sh the best thing to do is just give up, right? So I guess this, this is still in the context of let's win this war. But saying, like, if we can't, don't waste blood on a hopeless cause but uh, I don't know if he's in a way he's maybe being a you know this is this is kind of an encouragement to take the war more seriously I suppose and to see it uh, you know put together an army that actually can win the war very quickly but not just drag it out and, and fight around the edges you know without clear aims now as we've seen before I think there was a clear plan the blockade and the Anaconda plan was there, and it's what wins the war eventually. But no one really realized how long it was going to take, and that certainly Horace Greeley is included in that. But 
um, you know, there's still this deep desire um, for a decisive victory. We saw that from Mary, Mary Chestnut, too, saying, Let, let's win this war now. Um, but that wouldn't have been possible for either side. Um, so next we have George McClellan writing uh, his memo to the president in August of August 7, 1861. And, um, you know, I think this is a good document. I think he's, my, my, you know, I, I think he's not, maybe he gets some bad, like he's 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 often seen maybe as a failure um but i think he's right about most of this uh you know first he says this war is different this is going to be a different this this isn't something that can be won in one battle it's not a european style war where you can just kind of beat them on the field and then force a treaty and and you know shift borders a little bit it's not like that that to win this war you're gonna have to actually totally defeat them crush them it's going to be a long war, and it's going to be a war against the people. It's not a war against a king or even an army. It's a war against the entire people. So you got to get ready for this. And so this is, I think, a good contrast to the Greeley letter where he's still saying, let's let's win this quickly. And, and McClellan's like, no, it's not going to happen. And he knows that. And I think his decisions, his choices to really buckle down and build an army are, are right in this, in this context. We're proven right. Um, but he also talks about securing Kentucky. Kentucky was neutral and it would be a while before it was, you know, fully occupied and, and things like that. Like there was a soft policy towards Kentucky. And I think McClellan agrees. The last thing we need is Kentucky, uh, moving away. Um, but you know, it's something that has to be secured eventually, but it has to be handled right. Um, there's a focus on the West here. Uh, he's, he's aware of how important the West is. It's not just going to be something that's going to be won in Virginia. Uh, he talks about expanding the army. And basically, the difficulty of this war is what this is about. It's going to be a great, great expense. And he's, he's preparing Lincoln for that. And of course, that's something that the United States will, will come to understand, even though it would do so in the face of a lot of internal divisions and, and, and struggles. But I think he's proven right in this document. I didn't find anything here to say like, oh, he's totally, he was proven, history proven, proved, proved him wrong. Focus on the West. That wins the war. Focus on building an army. That's what helps win the war. Um, and he was right. It was going to be a long one. So he, there's some, there's some wisdom here. And, and I think maybe McClellan was in some ways the right person at the time, despite his, his failings as a, as a commander in, in his major campaigns. Okay, enough on that. Uh, next, we have August 6th, 1861, the Confiscation Act. This is just a law passed by Congress, or it's part of a bigger law. But this is a legislative uh, endorsement of, the, of Benjamin Butler's policies at Fort Monroe, which were basically, we're going to take runaway slaves as, and we're going to take them as contraband. We're going to take them as the property of rebels. And we're going to confiscate it. So this conf there's euphemisms here about about uh, in the term confiscation and contraband. These, of course, human beings that were trying to free themselves. But legally, it was the way it had to be talked about. Um, now, there's other things mentioned here, just like about stuff that was taken. But there's a whole paragraph here on people. Quote, that whenever hereafter during the president's erection against the government of the United States, any person claimed to be held in service or service 
to labor or service under the law of any state shall be required or permitted by that person to whom such labor or service is claimed to be due or by a lawful agent of such person to take up arms against the United States or shall be required or permitted by that person to whom such labors or services claim to be due or as lawful agents to work or be employed in in or upon any fort, navy, dock, armory, ship, entrenchment, or any other military and naval service whatsoever against the government. This is just a long way of saying if a slave is owned by someone in rebellion against the United States, the United States can claim that labor um, themselves. All right. That's the legal foundation. So this is if you're if you're looking at the timeline of emancipation, right? It's this is some of the first Butler and Fort Monroe and his letter to Lincoln. The Fremont thing is special because that's dealing particularly with Missouri and and that Lincoln like like Kentucky, Missouri was something Lincoln wanted to uh, deal with, not quite so directly at this stage because it is it, it, this question is more complicated because you know if 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 a slave comes up from alabama it's one thing but if it's from a border state and the owner claims to be not in rebellion against them this confiscation act wouldn't have applied but in the fog of war who can tell right i think it's the the realities on the ground were made this very difficult to enforce strictly um but anyways uh Next, we got George McClellan to his wife again, another personal letter. This is later in August, and this is pretty harsh. He's basically expressing his political frustration with Lincoln, calling him at one point an idiot, um, fearing incompetence in Washington, fearing the enemy's strength. And here he kind of goes rolls back his claim that he doesn't want to be a dictator, saying that maybe I'll have to, maybe I'll have to be a dictator. But you can tell he's really, really anxious about the leadership in Washington. And when you have defeats... That's, uh, you know, that happens. <clears throat> All right. Next. Okay. Now we're kind of uh, getting into the Wilson Creek's battle. So the Wilson Creek battle was fought in Missouri. So again, I, I direct you to this Wikipedia list, uh, the list of American Civil War battles. Um, it doesn't have all of them because I think there's like 8,000 uh, moments of hostility, of violence and some sort during the war. Um, this just has battles but some minor ones and major ones so it's got a really nice useful list and i'm going to keep this open as i do this series um the battle of uh of wilson's creek was fought on august 10th uh which is you know 20 days after the first battle of bull run but it's there's no other battle here so there weren't any minor battles between them so there's kind of a, a calm after the first battle of bull run Battle of Wilson's Creek was the next one. It's rated an A in this, this system they're using. So an A is a decisive battle, B is a major, C is formative, and D is a limited engagement. So this is considered a major battle. Confederate victory. Uh, Union forces under Nathaniel Lyon and Samuel Sturgis lose to Confederates under Sterling Prince and Benjamin McCullough. Lyon is killed. Uh, it's the first major battle in the West. Uh, casualties, and as we've seen, the casualties in truth and what was reported after the war by eyewitnesses or, or officers or soldiers often were quite different but the union lost 1300 men uh 285 of them killed the confederates lost 1200 men 277 of them killed um so on par with the the first battle of bull run in terms of the body count not as many captured i guess the, the union lost more in in like an additional thousand people or so were captured or missing after the first battle of Bull Run. 
But anyways, Wilson's Creek. Um, this documents by, uh, it's a memoir. A lot of these battlefield accounts seem to come from memoirs because, you know, soldiers didn't necessarily write down exactly what happened. I don't know what the military reports look like. I guess they were kind of boring. I think they are, if you wanted to write like a Civil War history, there are those military official accounts and all that. But in terms of literature, these memoirs are probably better sources, just more enjoyable to read, I suppose. Um, but uh, this EF uh, Ware was a harness maker from Burlington. He was a private in the 1st Iowa Infantry. And he wrote this memoir way uh, much, much later in 1907. So he's an old man when he's writing this. Um, but still, it's an eyewitness account, um, just a little bit after the fact. Um, so what to say about it? I didn't take much notes. I guess what's notable about this document is it's very much from a, the private's point of view. It's not someone seeing the troop movements. It's someone seeing cannons. It's someone seeing a charge. It's someone hearing the chaos of the battlefield. And that's the feeling you get when you read this this document. It's very much a, you know, you know, the fog of war. And he talks about how the battlefield was covered with smoke. He didn't know what was going on. He just heard the artillery firing and even says, like, I can't really talk about what happened in terms of, of strategy or, or tactics or anything like that. It's just uh, something he survived through. Um, what he does get news on is the death of Lyon. I, Lyon, I think, maybe was one of the first high ranking officers to be killed in the war. Maybe not the like. I'm not sure about that, but one of the one of the first uh, generals to fall. And what's really kind of interesting about this is, according to Ware, they sort of thought they won the battle, and they didn't. It's, it's like, you know, talk about fog of war. It's not even clear if you win the battle or not. Um, anyways, um, our next document is kind of a southern point of perspective on the same um, battle. It's from an officer. Uh, it's also from a memoir written much later, though, 1903 in this case. Uh, this was uh, an Arkansas artillery officer. And so it's kind of a southern point of view of Wilson's Creek. Um, and he, he served throughout the war. So he, was, he wrote a memoir called With the Light Guns in 61 to 65. So he was there throughout the whole war. So this might be a source someone I want to check out. I think this document, though, it's not quite as interesting as the where one, because the where one does, you do get this sense of the struggle of the common soldier and the chaos of the battlefield and all that. This is a, a little bit different point of view, of course, from an uh, artillery officer who, who had probably had a better idea of what was going on in the battle. All right. So that's the Battle of Wilson's Creek. As I said, that's kind of the central big historical event of the period we're going to look at today but the other thing and then this is of course in hindsight really significant but uh you know maybe not front page news quite as much and that's the john c fremont proclamation fremont of course was the explorer he was he was a major figure before the war as one of an army officer involved in the western kind of opening up the west or so he served in the u.s mexican war he was, of course, also the Republican presidential nominee in 56, you know, because that was commonly done at those days. They brought up a war hero to to um, to run for president. Uh, so, you know, he had a pretty good show for a, a brand new party, the Republican Party. 
Um, and now he's a general. So really big, important person. Someone that, you know, someone, someone that should be pay, we should pay attention to as a, as a significant figure in the war. Uh, of course, his reputation is often tied into these events. Um, although maybe they shouldn't. There's, he did so much. But, uh, you know, he was a fierce anti-slavery person. And, you know, he was one of the early figures in the Republican Party, of course. Um, and so this proclamation from August 1861 basically imposes martial law on Missouri. So that's what he does. And, and that's part of it. But the other part of this is seizing property, including slaves, uh, of, um, of anyone who takes up arms in, against the United States. Quote, the property, real or, and personal, meaning slaves, right, of all persons in the state of Missouri who shall take arms against the United States or who shall be directly proven to have taken an act apart with their enemies in the field is declared to have be confiscated to the public use and their slaves, if they have any, are hereby declared freedmen. So he does a couple of things. He says, we're going to claim their property, real and personal. Oh, sorry. So I, I read that wrong. Real and personal means their farms, their animals, you know, whatever they might have there, their guns. But their slaves are also are declared free. Um, this goes farther than the Confiscation Act, and it goes farther than the than Butler's policy of, of kind of talking about these people as contraband and confiscating them on those grounds. Well, Fremont here is saying they're just free. And I think another issue with this is it's very hard to say, okay, it's one thing if they're taking arms, right? They're in the Confederate Army. You know, that's clear. But what's this, this part, you know, take an active part with the enemies in the field? What does that mean? You know, if you give any aid and succor to a Confederate troop or a... Confederate loyalist or secessionist, if you voted for secession, are you uh, considered an enemy of the United States at that point? It's pretty broad, um, which makes this document kind of a radical thing, as it just says, we, you know, it's laying claim to Missouri as a Union state from the top down. Um, so the problem with this from Lincoln's point of view is not that he didn't want the slaves to be freed or he wasn't sympathetic to the goals. It's he didn't want to lose Missouri and Kentucky. I mean, those border states, there was a real fear that they would go. Maybe Maryland and Delaware less, even though Maryland had a secessionist group as well. They were quite vocal. But Kentucky and Missouri had much larger populations of enslaved men and women farther from Washington maybe geographically closer to you know the slave south if you will like the cotton south uh, on the mississippi which is of course so crucial to the war there's a lot of reasons to worry about these states so that was a problem with this heavy-handed approach to secessionists in missouri as much as we might agree with them I know Lincoln may have been proven right. It's like, hold off on this until we know they're not going to go. Until we have troops in the field, we, you know, we know they're not going to go eventually. When, when we're, we're in that more secure position, then we can maybe talk about these things. But for now, don't antagonize them and, and we might lose them entirely. So that that's, uh, leads us to the... 18, uh, the September 1861 document by Abraham Lincoln, where he tells Freeman to limit confiscations and and not execute Confederates. I, those are the two things he says not to do. He says, like, yeah, you're going to have, if you're claiming martial law, 
that might give you the right to arbitrarily set up military courts to try confederates but don't go willy-nilly executing confederates because that's just going to push them maybe towards secession and also to limit confiscation specifically in slaves it's what's on his mind i think um he says allow me therefore to ask that that you will as of your own motion he's saying you do this yourself it's not gonna don't don't say i'm just doing this because lincoln told me to do it yourself Modify the paragraph so it's conformed to the first and fourth sections of the act of Congress entitled the Confiscation Act. Essentially, he says, make your policy in line with the Confiscation Act, um, which doesn't free the slaves. It's just, if we go back to the actual wording here, all it says is rebels uh, lose their, they can't claim the labor and service. It doesn't say it's freeing the slaves. And it actually gives ground to, to challenge those seizures. Um, so Lincoln's saying, just apply the Confiscation Act. Don't go farther and free, free them. And of course, eventually this does lead to the sacking of Fremont. But I, I think he waits till there's like a defeat or something that he can use to justify it. But we, we, we got into this a little bit with the Lincoln documents uh, a year or so ago when I did those. All right, next we have Douglas, Steve, uh, sorry, not Stephen, very wrong Douglas, Frederick Douglas, uh, September 1861. And all the documents we've seen from him kind of are arguing the same thing. I don't think he's wrong to make this argument, but he's, he's constantly repeating it, which is we need to enlist black soldiers. Um, we're fighting, he says here, you're fighting with one hand behind your back by not employing black soldiers. We want to fight, we'll fight by the thousands. And it will help us win the war quickly. Now, the controversial part here is where he says, ah, blacks are serving in the Confederate Army. Um, and of course, there were blacks with the Confederate Army as slaves. They weren't fighting alongside them. Um, he writes, it's pretty well established that there are present many colored men in the Confederate Army doing duty, not only as cooks, servants and laborers, but also as real soldiers, having muskets on their shoulders and bullets in their pockets. This is not true at this point. Um, black Confederates is a bit of a myth, and it's something that was only used very, very late in the war, in the last weeks, literally. Um, too little, too late to save the Confederacy. But, you know, Douglas maybe heard something, or he's just using this as a, to say, to try to push the administration to employ black soldiers for the Union Army. I'll just leave it at that. I, I have no reason to believe Douglas is, is purposely lying, but if he is, he's 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 got a reason for doing it. Um, but we've seen a lot of fog of war already in these documents, so maybe he heard something. It's not surprising that someone looking through the telescope or the, the spyglass thing would see a, a black person with a gun holding a gun or something, or even using one in the in 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 the midst of a battle. Doesn't mean they were enlisting black soldiers. Okay, next we got Abraham Lincoln to Orville Browning. Browning was uh, his friend. Um, and he was uh, actually given Stephen Douglas's Senate seat when, he, when Douglas died around this time. And this is, uh, he basically says, he talks about why he revokes the Fremont Proclamation or pushes it. And he he says it has to do with uh, 
you know, a clear plan for the future of those states. Um, he says, I, t I did this because of Kentucky. He's pretty clear. It's like Kentucky is the most likely to maybe flip. And we don't want to antagonize Kentucky. And he says there's a difference between principle and policy, which, of course, is true. Uh, Lincoln's principles are probably with Fremont's proclamation. Um, but the policy must consider the border states. So he's explaining to his friend, who I think is also very anti-slavery, why he forced Fremont to roll back. All right. Next, we have John Ross again. John Ross, I think we met him in the last episode where he was saying we're going to be uh, neutral at the Cherokee. John Ross was the chief of the, of the Cherokee, the head of the Cherokee Nation. Um, but here we got uh, October 9th. So now we're looking at a, almost a couple months after the first battle of Bull Run. But this is a message to the National Council, which is like the Cherokee Congress. And he says, he's basically reporting that I've negotiated with the Confederacy. And he's arguing for ratification for a treaty with the Confederacy. And of course, the Cherokee would eventually aid, uh, basically kind of go in as, as allies. How much they fought, I'm not sure. Um, but they moved from a neutrality position to one of support for the Confederacy. Um, you know, it looked like they might have a good chance of winning. They might be able to get security about, you know, their their autonomy in the future from them. I'm not sure all what the Confederacy promised, but um, he's saying we're changing our relationship with the Confederacy. We're going from neutrality to to recognition and 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 cooperation with them. Anything else to say about this? I guess it's something I think we just have to be somewhat sympathetic to why he made this decision. He writes, for instance, the Cherokee people do not desire to be involved in war, but self-preservation fully justifies them in the course they have adopted and they will be recreant to themselves if they should not sustain at the utmost of their humblest ability. A treaty with the Confederate States has been entered into and is now submitted for your ratification. In view of the circumstances by which we are surrounded and the provisions of the treaty will be found to be the most important ever negotiated on behalf of the Cherokee Nation, and we mark a new era in its history. Without attempting to recapitulate all of its provisions, some of its distinctive features may briefly be enumerated. Now, he talks about things like basically Confederacy honoring patents and property rights and things like that and borders that the United States had already negotiated. Um, but I think the heart of it is, um, is future security of lands. That's what they want. And what's what they were promised. So that's John Ross. Um, all right. I think, oh yeah. And so next we got, uh, the battle of Ball's Bluff. So this is another defeat. Uh, this one's in the next major battle in Virginia and our, our eyewitness account here is a letter from Henry Livermore Abbott to his um, father. So he was 19. He was a Harvard graduate. He became second lieutenant in uh, the 20th Massachusetts Volunteers. And he wrote to his father about this battle. So if we shift back to our list of Civil War battles, after Wilson's Creek, there's a whole bunch of them in August and September. But they're all like C's and D's. There's one B here, the Battle of Cheat Mountain. Uh, which was a Union victory. Um, 300 Union troops withstood coordinated, uncoordinated Confederate attacks. But um, Ball's Bluff is a B. So this is the only other 
be here, as I, I think, from Wilson's Creek on. Uh, it's another Confederate victory. So the big battles here, there are Union victories here, but the big battles seem to be won by the Confederacy and 550 Union soldiers captured in Virginia. So as I said, the Battle of Ball's Bluff. Altogether, over almost 1,000 Union casualties and out of 1,700, so over half that unit is killed or captured. And the Confederacy only lost 155 men, 35 of them killed. So a pretty one-sided um, battle, kind of a disaster. And this leads to the setting up of the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War, which would um, basically be a political oversight of the war. Um, that would try to, I mean, basically Congress would over, give oversight of, of Lincoln's handling of the war. So it kind of enters some politics into it. But um, this document, it's, of course, a major defeat, um, but he's, he's very proud of his unit's um, bravery in the battle. That's the main thing he wants to tell to his father and probably doesn't want to worry his father too much. Um, he says, our men of our company couldn't possibly have behaved better. They never fired once without an order. They never advanced without an order as the rest did. They never retreated without an order as some of the others did. In short, they never once lost their presence of mind and behaved as well as if on a parade ground. So that's that. Um, next, we have another George McClellan to his wife letter, October 25th, which is uh, his frustration after the Battle of Balls Bluff. Um, but he also talks about being promo promoted to commander-in-chief at this point, taking over the position from Winfield Scott. So we'll just leave it at that. Then we have Charles Francis Adams. We To Henry Adams. So we've been seeing Henry Adams writing to his brother in Washington. This is a really cool relationship because Henry Adams is in London with his father, who's the ambassador, and Charles Francis Adams is in Washington. But usually we've seen it from the Henry Adams to the other way. This is Charles Francis Adams then writing to his brother in London saying, it's just a fucking mess in Washington. Everyone here is pretty incompetent. Frustration with the president and people demanding change. You can see how fragile the political situation was. You got the joint Congress getting involved in oversight. You got a lot of frustration in the administration. You got people believing the Confederacy was going to like march into Washington any day now. And, you know, a desperate need for a victory. Um, and this is just a really great example of that. Um, he says, when was English England greatest? Was it not when an angry people drove the drivelers from office and forced them an unwilling king, the elder pit, who reserved at once the whole current of a war? So you're saying maybe we need that kind of shakeup in, in the administration. Force Lincoln to maybe, maybe McClellan's, you know, something that's on somewhere in the back of McClellan's mind of maybe I could be a dictator. I don't know. I don't think that's Charles Francis, Francis Adams values, though. Adams values. Adams family values? Isn't that a movie? All right. Uh, again, McClellan. Uh, we got another McClellan letter. This one to Samuel Barlow, uh, who is his friend. So there's some insider trading in this document, I have to say, uh, where he says, we've seen other examples of this, and I don't know how we want to think about it, but he says, now is best to resign the presidency of the O&M. He's talking about a railroad. And of course, McClellan was involved in railroad stuff prior to the war. So he's in on that. But the fact that there's his advice about 
stock and selling this or that. It's, it's, it is essentially kind of insider trading going on. But basically he's saying here we need to build an army and we need to start drilling. And of course that's what he's going to do over this winter and into the spring of 62. Wow, a lot of documents in this selection. Sorry about that, um, but a lot of them are quite short. Uh, so another battle. This one is the Battle of Belmont. Uh, this is another Western battle. Um, it's Wikipedia puts it as an inconclusive battle um, where Grant, the goal, the result is Grant captures and destroys Confederate supplies near Cairo, Illinois. Um, a pretty bloody battle, actually. 607 casualty, Union casualties, 641 Confederate casualties of those 120 Union dead and 105 Union or Confederate dead. Um, now it was it was like he attacked this fort, I guess, um, by riverboat, a small outpost near Belmont, um, and destroyed it. But the Confederate forces retreated, reorganized, and were able to counterattack. And so it ends up being an indecisive battle, but the fort was devastated. Um, now, what's important about this battle is, even though it was indecisive, it did show Grant as someone who was willing to take the fight to the Confederacy, and that really impressed um, Lincoln. And this letter to his father, Grant's letter to his father, is quite—he seems quite proud of what he's done here. Um, he says, "We got a great many prisoners." Um, in that and he talks about it. he basically paints it as a success so he's trying to sell this as a success to his his father um then we have a another account a confederate account and i like how this anthology does try to on these major battles to get two points of view uh this one is from a confederate doctor a surgeon uh, from kentucky who served with confederate army and he wrote to his father who is also a physician about the battle of belmont so it's just a short little account of this um and again the kind of rumors about how many they lost he said we lost 250 and killed wounded and missing when in fact they lost i think yeah 641 so again numbers at the just weren't known until later in many cases all right uh let's just look at two more documents um because they're both dealing with slavery which is maybe some of the most important narratives of the war, more, more important than, than this battle or that battle or how many people are captured or whatever. The first of these is Sam Mitchell, narrative of the capture of the Sea Islands. Uh, in this case, it's Port Royal. Um, so this was, I, I guess we could paint this as another uh, battle. Now the Wikipedia list puts this in a, there's two lists actually, one of like major battles and the other is like other skirmishes and things so this is painted as a skirmish more as the battle of port royal um 31 union casualties 63 confederate casualties so it wasn't a major battle um although there were a lot of union troops involved to 12,000 plus were in 77 ships against 3,000 troops and four ships um but low casualties but it's really significant battle because it was taking it was important for the Anaconda plan for the blockade, taking one of these outlying sea islands. And it was also where reconstruction is first going to kind of be worked out. because It's going to be the first significant population of former slaves that the Union is going to control. And the question is, what do you do? How do you, re, you know, put them to work, give them land, redistribute land? All these questions that are key to reconstruction. 
uh, had to be played out in these areas under Union occupation, and this was one of the first. And there's actually quite a lot in this document, even though it's short, about um, about the about slavery. Now, the our document here is by Samuel Francis Dupont, and he was in the Union Army. He was actually the commander of the fleet, right? Uh, that the Union brought down, and since you might be thinking this, yeah, he's one of the Duponts. So he's the Duponts after the war would be a major industrial family, part of the the robber baron kind of Gilded Age, um, and of course still a significant you know corporation in in the United States. And he's so he's part of that um, the, the huge Dupont, Dupont family. But this is speaking to his Civil War service, um, but quite a lot about slavery here, um, and. He talks about the desolation of the population, the fleeing of the Confederate uh, civilians, leaving behind this large population of former slaves. Um, and this was already a place with a large black population, a black majority. He writes, there are 15 slaves to one white man in this part. So it's um, a lot of former slaves were, were living here. Um, and the question was what to do with them and how to deal with them and and. And even though this is very, very early in the story, he's dealing with some of these questions. Um, for instance, one thing is paying for stuff that they took from these slaves. So the slaves, it's kind of acknowledging these slaves had property uh, and weren't just property. You know, when they took their stuff, they said, oh, we we're going to pay you for it. Um, so that's the significant aspect of this. So worth checking out for that aspect of it. Anyways, also taking all the property, which, of course, leads to the Confiscation Act thing. Um, and eventually this place sort of gets left to the control of these former slaves. Quote, I've withdrawn the force. I regret to leave this place to the Negroes. But why should I expose my people to save the property of those who are planning their destruction and who disregard the ordinary rules of war? So he's saying, you know, yeah, we're given, basically we're leaving this place to these former slaves. But big deal. I mean, it's Confederate property and i'm not going to cry over over that all right so the final document i want to talk about is from by a guy named sam mitchell who was uh he's also talking about the sea island captures now this was a document that was written down in 1937 it's part of the federal writers project wpa interviews with former slaves which you can find so they're in the 30s these, you know, part of the New Deal program was hiring these writers. And one thing they did was went to interview slaves, former slaves, I should say, people who experienced slavery directly. And we have these accounts. I think some of them are actually recorded, right? Um, or a lot of them were. So we got a wonderful uh, memoir of a former slave, you know, even though he was only 11 years old when this happened. Um, he remembers things and he remembers uh you know, his master having nine children, six of them went off to the rebel army. And, you know, that's significant in itself because the large number of white men who went to the war meant these plantations were left, you know, understaffed by, by white men. And so women had to take on that burden of managing the plantations. And in some cases, this made it easier for slaves to run away or to escape or to coerce wages out of their masters or things like that. Um, there's all kinds of examples of this stuff in the secondary literature I read. Um, 
lot of love here of Lincoln too. Did I ever hear old Abraham Lincoln? I got his history right here in my house. He was the president of the United States that freed four million slaves. He come to Buford before the war and ate dinner with Colonel Paul Hamilton House at the Oaks. He left his gold-headed walking cane there and ain't nobody know the president of the United States been to Buford till he right back and tell him to look behind the door and send him his gold-headed walking cane. I mean, just a wonderful thing that he has this memory and this, I mean, it's probably, there's some myth-making involved in this, but, you know, something that Lincoln touched and that's kind of something that's in his mind and he carries it with him after the war and into his freedom. So it's really, really fascinating. So anyways, that's all. A lot of documents. I apologize for that, but just a lot of short ones. Um, in the next episode, we'll finish up the first volume of the Civil War Anthology, which will uh, get us into 1862. And um, that's not the last one of uh, kind of finishing the first phase of this project. So anyways, thanks for listening. Uh, I hope there's something interesting in these documents for you. I know I went on a little bit long today, but uh, that's just the nature of, of having a lot of these little documents. Um, but let me know if you have any questions or thoughts about any of this stuff. Um, I will see you next time. And again, thanks so much for listening. He frightened old Virginia till she trembled through and through. They hanged him for a traitor. They themselves, the traitor crew, his soul goes marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His soul.